Bookmark with Lee Chambers on Cambridge 105 Radio. With Heifer's Bookshop, the great Cambridge bookseller since 1876. Our aspirations, rather than books. Hello and welcome to Bookmark. We have an eclectic and thought-provoking show today. Our featured guest is Helen Joyce. She's talking about her book, Trans, When Ideology Meets Reality. We'll also hear from Venetia Welby chatting about her novel, Dreamtime, and Natasha Calder and Emma Shevchek will be chatting about their novel, The Offset. Helen, we'll give you a proper introduction in just a moment. But first of all, welcome to Bookmark. Thank you for having me on. It's lovely to have you on. And indeed, I've been trying to get you on for some time. I know you've been very busy, but also you were in your emails to me saying, are you sure about this? You might get a bit of flack for this. Is, is this now a part of your life that you have to protect yourself and protect others who have contact with you? Yeah, I mean, I don't want to give the impression that I'm hounded from pillar to post. That's not true. But it is now the case that I have to make sure that people know what they're letting themselves in for, because you're not meant to talk about the things that I talk about in this book. There are consequences. And those consequences include people being harassed or told that they're bigots, or even in the most extreme examples, uh, people going after their jobs. And how does that feel, being told that you're a bigot? Hmm. I mean, it was very confusing at first, but I guess I'm used to it now, which is a kind of sad thing to say. I don't mind nasty, disingenuous, bad faith idiots on the internet saying things, and mostly I don't see it because I'm not stupid enough to go Googling my own name. I mind that people who are close to me and whom I care about either maybe think that I think things I don't, or that in fact I'm bringing trouble to them. So that's what I was worrying about. I was worrying that I'm bringing you trouble. And what about the book? I know I've heard reports that sometimes the book has been hard to find in bookshops and yet the bookseller has said, no, we've got five copies, but they're not where they should be. They've been moved around. The orders have been good and the sales have been very good. It was in the top 10 for the Times bestseller nonfiction, I think, four of its first six weeks. But I hear that some independent booksellers don't stock it and then when people ask for it, they say, well, you know, it's bigotry or it offends people who work here. And actually individual stores, that's the way it works. It's not head office. Head office, for example, for Waterstones have been ordering it fine and we've sold quite a lot in Waterstones. But I've heard from individuals that they've gone into particular stores and they've been told that they're not shelving it or that they're keeping it behind the counter or that it's been sold out and they're not getting new copies. So that's frustrating, really. Like you think, like, how many would it have sold if it had been pushed a bit? Have you ever thought about leaving this arena, given all this, given the threats, given that your work has been hidden? too late now in one way. But also I went into it for a reason. I'm not a controversialist. I didn't go into it to annoy people or to make a name for myself or anything like that. Indeed, I understood that there would be risks to it. I went into it when I realised that there were considerable harms happening in particular to children. It was when I met some young women who had been misled into thinking that their unusual feelings of dissociation from their bodies and their same-sex attraction, their same-sex orientation, meant that they were really boys and they took medical steps, including, for some of them, up to getting sterilised, having their reproductive organs removed. And they now regretted that and they were only the same age as my older boy. At that point, when you realise they're sterilising kids, these sort of considerations become secondary and I felt I'd seen it, I had to say it, it was a moral obligation. And what about supporters of that opinion, of your opinion? Well, we know just from talking to people and also from looking at polling that nearly everybody agrees with me. Most people think that there are two sexes, they're not things that we can change. That matters in some specific circumstances like sport or in changing rooms. It's so odd to me that there are people who 
argue at that that I still can't get my head around it. But anyway, basically nearly everyone agrees with me. It's just either they don't know that there's an issue here or they're scared to say anything because the backlash can be quite intense. Well, we're going to talk in detail about what you say in your book very shortly, but let's hear some music now. Is music important to you, Helen? Enormously important. It's the art form I care most about. And I made a playlist for writing this book and I listened to it nearly every day while I was writing. So I've given you some selections from it. Yes, these are all from your playlist. So we've got two Michael Nyman tracks and another one. Let's start with one of the Michael Nyman tracks first, which is Musica Grande Vitesse. Why this one? You're going to play part of a longer piece. It's about 25 minutes long and it was commissioned to commemorate um, the opening of the French high-speed rail. And it's a piece that builds with remarkable subtlety and beauty from the beginning to the end. And you know, I still get thrills listening to it. It sends shivers down my spine, although I've been listening to it on heavy rotation for years now. And that was Music A Grand Vitesse by Michael Nyman. First choice of music on Bookmark today from our featured guest, Helen Joyce. Helen is Britain editor at The Economist, where she's held several senior positions, including finance editor and international editor. Her first book, Trans, When Ideology Meets Reality, was published in July. Billed as an examination and critique of gender identity politics, it became an instant Sunday Times bestseller and a spectator book of the year. The Telegraph called it a superlative critical analysis. The Sunday Times described it as a searing and at times devastating analysis of an ideological shift that has had a profound influence on many institutions in the West. Well, as I say, Helen, we'll look at the contents in just a moment, but let's kind of rewind a little bit first. Can you remember when this issue first came onto your radar, if you like. Yes, I think it was in 2017 and it was a senior commissioning editor said to me, why do my kids keep coming home and saying such and such is trans or such and such is non-binary? And I went, no idea. I'll look into it for you, if you like. That was a moment that changed my life, if any, if any moment did. And what I found confused me... It confused me partly because people reacted to my asking good faith, simple questions as a journalist from a respected publication in a way I've never had before or since on any other topic. I've been a lot of different things at The Economist in particular. I lived out in Brazil for a while. I was a Brazil correspondent. And I've written about a lot of things, including presidential elections, murder, prison policy, paedophilia. And I never had the same reaction of, you know, if you even ask about this, you must be a bigot. So that was kind of Spidey Sense's tingling moment for me. And also, if you're a journalist, that should be the wake-up call that you ask more questions, not fewer. You don't run away when people won't answer questions. I mean, you know, this is the profession that has sayings like, you know, why is this lying liar lying to me? If it bleeds, it leads, that sort of thing. So, So I just kept looking and it puzzled me more and more as an intellectual argument for about a year, really. I mean, what it is, I have to say what it is, It is this idea that what makes you a man or a woman or a boy or a girl is not just what you were conceived and born and grew up as. It's what you say you are, what you feel you are, what you say you are. And that sounds simple and it sounds quite liberating, actually. But as I show at book length, it has consequences. Those consequences took a while for me to really understand. And the more I understood them, the more concerned I was. And the more I realised that there were really people who didn't want you to talk about this for, well, for a mixture of reasons. They just disagree with you, but also sometimes really unpleasant and bad reasons. And so I couldn't stop. Yes, at book length. Let's, uh, let's get to the central thrust of the book, what you are saying. We all have a sex. We're a mammalian species. We come in male and female and those things can't be changed. It's what you're conceived. And that has consequences. So female people are the ones who carry the babies. They're weaker. It's not a nice thing to say, but it happens to be true. Men are stronger. A bunch of other stuff. Men commit most of the violence and in particular almost all the sexual violence. And those facts 
shape some aspects of our lives, for example, sport, or that we separate people in prisons. But this idea has developed over about the last, I would say, it's really come into public awareness in the past five years, but in my book I trace it back further, about a century. This idea that it's something in your mind that makes you a man or a woman, not just the brute fact of your biology. I think that's profoundly retrograde for quite a few reasons, and in particular for women and for children and for gay people. As J.K. Rowling, who talks about this subject and has got a lot of pushback, once said, if there's no sex, there's no sexual orientation. So if you can't say which people are female and that you're female, you can't actually be a lesbian. So suddenly we get these odd ideas, you know, like lesbians with male genitals. Well, to me, that's a straight man. These ideas are being used to confuse children, to misdirect gay people, to take away women's privacy, and just generally to try to reorganise society in a way that's quite authoritarian because you're not allowed to talk about it. You've written a book about this and you've written at length and uh, you have a social media profile and this. What qualifies you to write about this? I mean, journalists don't talk like that. What qualified me to head out to Brazil and interview the president in, in 2010 when there was coming up to an election? The thing that qualifies me more than anything else to write about this is that I'm able to. I have talked to a lot of people who can't. Some of the children who have been misled into transitioning, you know, taking drugs and having surgery and then changing their minds, they're very traumatised. They're people who can't tell their own stories. And some of the parents of children who have got caught up in what is now also a social media contagion are desperate to tell their story because they want to help other people and they want to reach out and make connections, but they don't want to alienate their children. So I speak partly because other people can't. And I would say also I'm somebody who thinks in a very logical way. My PhD is in mathematics and I was an academic before I became a journalist. And at the heart of this ideology is a logical confusion. I sometimes use the analogy that it's as if you said zero equals one and you say to yourself, that's not going to change anything else. Actually, it would change everything. That would propagate through into every equation, every theorem, and it would ruin all of mathematics. So the point at which you say both male and female people can be women, both male and female people can be men, and then you say male and female don't mean anything, that wrecks everything. It wrecks everything in society. You don't notice it at first because it's creeping out, but it touches everything. That logical starting point was the reason that it first intrigued me and the reason that I couldn't let it go. And who are you talking about here? Because there will be people that you know, there are people that I know who are transgender, who have suddenly found themselves, if you like, who are much happier. They're not trying to change anybody. It's not a book about trans people, it's a book about an idea. And that idea that what makes you a man or a woman is just what you say is something that affects all of us. So if you say that a male person can be a woman because that male person says they're a woman, then I'm a woman because I say I'm a woman. And why would I say I'm a woman? And straight away you find yourself in stereotypes and in a weird sort of Descartian dualism. I don't believe that. I believe that I'm a woman because an egg and a sperm met. The egg that was fertilised was female. It implanted, I was born, I was noticed to be female by the doctors, and I grew up. I didn't die before I became an adult. That's the only reason I'm a female. There's this lovely definition of feminism, which is the radical notion that women are human, or women are people. To me, this idea that what makes you a woman is being womanly is kind of the opposite of that. I'm a woman whether I'm womanly or not. I can't be cast out of my sex by how I act. And you say in the book, my intention is not to be unkind to trans people, but to prevent greater unkindness. What do you mean by that? 
Well, if you tell everybody, in particular if you tell children, that what makes people one sex or the other or neither, something in between like non-binary or gender fluid, is what they say they are, then you're inviting children to consider how they feel about things. But what are they going to guide themselves with? All they can guide themselves with is what they know about our society, which is quite stereotypical about the way it thinks about boys and girls. So straight away you're confusing kids, and in particular you're confusing the gender non-conforming ones. And one of the best attested findings in all of child psychology is that gay kids are more likely to be gender non-conforming. So you're confusing gay kids, or kids who are going to be gay when they hit puberty and realise who they really are. But also, you're destroying distinctions that are important to a lot of people. So, for example, there are now rapists in women's jails, including in this country. There's nothing I can imagine more unkind than locking up women. Now, women in prison have almost all been sexually abused, they face domestic violence, they're some of the world's most traumatised and vulnerable women, and you're putting a rapist in with them and, and they can't get away. because this rapist has identified themselves as female. Yes, well. that's right, yes. And, I mean, if anyone has any idea that maybe this rapist has to have gone through surgery on his genitals, no. There's no condition for that. So there are actually fully intact male rapists in women's jails. Some people would push back on this and say, well, what about the wider picture of these transgender people who are just happily living their lives? They aren't the ones who are in jails. They aren't the ones who are insisting on going into female changing rooms. So the idea applies to everybody. And the way we organise society applies to everybody. And in particular, safeguarding applies to everybody. So when I say that I expect everybody who works with children to have gone through safeguarding, it's not because I think that everybody's a paedophile or a child abuser. It's because that's the way it works. And if you think about the difference in numbers, like I worked it out, our prison population is 4% female. And we reckon that about 2% of the male prison population identifies as women. That's half the total number of women. So suppose you put them all in and then you look at the crimes. You know, men are five times more likely to commit a violent crime and the difference for sexual crimes is even greater. So actually you could very quickly find that women's prisons are mostly violent and sexually violent males. These are not small numbers in the context of places like prisons. And it's the same in sport. You know, men are so much stronger than women that even a quite mediocre male who identifies as a woman can beat all but the very best females. So these are very unkind things. It's unkind to make girls compete with boys in sport. It's unkind to put rapists into women's prisons. And that's not a character reference for ordinary trans people who aren't trying to compete in the wrong sport category and aren't rapists and aren't in prison, they're just going about their lives. But these are the consequences of that ideology. Is this being argued by transgender activists and if so, why? It definitely is being argued by transgender activists and I would make a strong distinction between them and trans people at large. And I know a lot of trans people are absolutely horrified by the antics of some of the transgender activists who are not even trans. This is a great cause to latch on to if you're a man who really dislikes women and likes being able to call people Karen and shout sexualising insults at them and turn up outside feminist conferences with grotesque signs. Yeah, it is being argued. It's an ideology and all sorts of strange ideologies are argued. But also it's a lot of fun for people who like aggro. So you think this has been argued by a lot of men who want to shake up women's lives and perhaps reclaim some of the ground that women have won. It's also attracting a lot of people from the left. Yes, it seems like a civil liberty movement, doesn't it? I mean, that's certainly where I would have started from. It seems like the next in the sort of, you know, centuries-long march of progress. You know, women got the vote. Before that, if you go back further, you know, America ended slavery. Other countries took a bit longer. Gay rights, gay marriage. And here we are, we have trans rights. That's what we call it, trans rights. Well, trans people have had rights in this country since the 1990s and quite right too. 
since the 1990s, it's been illegal to sack somebody or harass somebody or deny them healthcare or housing or anything like that just because they present as if they're a member of the opposite sex. What people mean when they say trans rights, though, is that if I say I'm a man, you have to go along with it. And if a man says he's a woman, everybody has to go along with that. And I don't see that that's a right. I see that that's an imposition on everyone else. Well, we're going to hear from Natasha Calder and Emma Shevchek in just a moment. They're talking about their novel, which is set in in the future. I'm not going to ask you yet where you see the trans activist movement going, but it has developed very, very quickly hasn't it? Yeah, I think a lot was going on behind the scenes. There have been people working on these ideas for a long time. But the idea that what makes us a man or a woman is what we say is such an extraordinarily fringe idea. It was literally like saying the earth is flat. It's just out there on the fringes of society. And in the book, I try to say why it very suddenly exploded into public awareness. But I do think one of the reasons is because we won gay marriage. The same organisations were looking for another cause. And the internet is another reason. It came along at the time to spread the ideas, and in particular to spread the ideas between teenagers, and also to make us all sit around and forget that actually we're embodied creatures. We're not some sort of, you know, mind on a stick. Thank you, Helen. We'll come back to you in just a moment, but let's hear from Natasha and Emma now. Natasha Calder and Emma Shevchek make up the writing duo Calder Shevchek. Natasha is a graduate of the 2018 Clarion West Writers' Workshop and her work has appeared in The Stinging Fly magazine, Lackingtons and Curiosities. Emma Shevchek researches contemporary representations of the Holocaust and has published work with T&T Clark and the Paulist Press. The Offset, their first novel together, was published in September and when I met them, Emma began by telling me what it's about. So the offset is about having to choose one of your parents to die as a carbon offset for your own life. It's about antinatalism and it's about how women's rights and climate change activism can sometimes collide. Very dark. Kind of dark, yes. Well, reality is very dark right now. That's true. Um, That's something that we wanted to deal with, the future looking quite uncertain for a lot of people all over the world in the face of the climate crisis. I think it's something we wanted to kind of deal with head on. We're both drawn to quite dark stuff ourselves. It would have felt maybe quite disingenuous to deal with this subject in any way that wasn't maybe very serious and very dark. And where did this idea come from about sacrificing a parent? So um, I just had my first child. That led to a lot of late night conversations with Natasha over a glass of wine with me so horrified really with what it meant to have a baby in what the world looks like in this moment with the climate emergency that we're living through. We'd been talking a lot about writing something together. Mm. We'd been playing around with different projects and then this just sort of emerged very organically, didn't it? Yes, and I think once that hook was established, there was no way we could turn away from it. It was such a cool idea. It felt like a sort of atonement, I think. After I'd had my child and I felt all this responsibility, we were both, what if we just turned that on its head and gave the child all the power? You know, like, I chose to make someone. I've made a life. And then what if that life could take mine away? When you look at the world and you see young activists like Greta Thunberg and other people of her generation who are so desperate to change the world and don't have the power. We were interested in what it would mean to give them the power but also then foist them with the responsibility for something that is not of their making. Yeah. That definitely We wanted a very thorny complicated sort of premise that mirrors the thorny reality of now. Something that wasn't easy, straightforward, moral questions with easy answers but something difficult that makes you think. So you got that idea, you decided you're going to write it together. Writing duo is quite unusual. How, how did it work? 
so well. Yeah. <laughs> it was great. I mean, it really was a dream, I have to say, I think. Both Natasha and I, we've both been writing for years separately. Mm. We were both in a bit of an impasse, I think, with our yeah. own work. And we just wanted to experiment, do something new. And there was no blueprint for that. We haven't really read that much fiction that's co-written. And so we just kind of felt like we were casting out into the sea. It is really hard to talk about now, I suppose, because it was so idiosyncratic. It was, and it was very organic. We didn't ever sit down at a certain point and say, all right, these are the tasks, and this is what you no. must do and what I must do. It wasn't rule-led. It's very hard, I suppose, to explain now because it wasn't, you know, Natasha wrote one chapter, I want one, wrote one chapter. We didn't do like it like that at all. We'd have late-night conversations. It was always yeah. late-night. Everything was a late-night <laughs> conversation. We'd have long conversations. We'd talk through various places where the book could go next. Mm. And then we'd bat emails back and forward. And then we'd get stuff down in Google Docs. And I think we can honestly say at this stage, I wouldn't know which sentences were written by who. Yeah. We'd both gone through it so much yeah. together in the same room and apart. Yeah, yeah. and of course, of and also a book changes shape quite a lot as you're writing it. So what we might have set out with at the beginning wasn't necessarily where we ended up, so it's very hard to pinpoint it at those different stages of the organic process. There was a lot of trust involved yeah. and a lot of discussion that was sort of underpinning everything else. That's and there's, I think there's a lot of myths around how books are written and how they're written by one person. I think anyone that's gone through the publishing process knows that so many people yeah. contribute to the book and in the end it never really is one person's work. Yeah. I feel like we just tackle that a bit Sooner. sooner in the process <laughs> and with a, quite a bit of honesty in it yeah, yeah. it's extraordinary and you've got different writing styles do you bring mm. different things to the project definitely I think our writing styles are quite similar mm. so that was practically very handy we would write sentences and you We'd know go back and forth over them on yeah, edits yeah they, they still would, melded together quite yes. well we have very different life experiences yeah. we brought a lot we've read lots of different things we have different interests in some respects so and Fortunately for us, different angles on the main issue of the book because yes. Emma is, has two children yep. and I never want to have children so we could tackle that from both sides and think it through without making assumptions about what yeah. the reader would want because yeah. we we're sort of covering it's, it's was quite bases. a key thing actually is that Natasha and I you know for as long as we've been friends we've known I wanted to have children Natasha didn't yeah. and it's something we've both talked about so much and with so much respect yes. you know we have different positions on this but we respect each other and love each other so much that I can completely see where you're coming and from likewise, and, yeah. and so we were able to take a subject like this and really bring everything to it. And what genre would you say this is? I mean, are we looking science fiction? Technically it's uh, science yeah, fiction. Yeah, I'd be happy with calling it science fiction and you could take it narrow in that and say it fits into grimdark within science fiction. But it has very broad themes that are very hopefully engaging for a lot of people right now. In another world you might slot it in women's fiction because it deals with these close women's relationships. Issues, yeah. I suppose it fits very well into speculative fiction right now. There's a lot of conversations about what speculative fiction actually is, mm. but I think we probably sit there. And what about world building? Because when you're creating a world which you've just described, which is not our world, where did you start and how thorough was your knowledge of oh, it? We have a very thorough knowledge of that world, probably too <laughs> yeah. thorough. I think that was the first thing to emerge out yes. of our conversations. We created a world that we thought was interesting and quite a significant thing in our world building was that we wanted to draw on various technologies or technological advances that either are burgeoning right now or being discussed but maybe yes. aren't actually being implemented. And we just found it fascinating to research these things and then 
put them into our world. The white reflective paint yes. and various other climate technologies that are being used in the book are all based on real-world things, but we always wanted to extrapolate it to a point that was still feasible, and I think that is a responsibility that you have sometimes when you're writing something that could be labelled as genre fiction because it's generally so much more unbelievable if you can ground it in as n- enough reality as possible and enough detail, then it, it makes it easier for the re- reader to come along and enjoy it and understand yeah. and connect it back to their own world and their daily experiences. Yeah. Um, with lots of novels that are set in dystopian worlds, mm. dystopian futures, clearly it's some kind of reflection back on the current situation. Yes. I mean, it's very clearly in your yeah. novel something about climate change. Are there other issues in that? Obviously, the climate emergency underpins what's going on with the book but I think we kind of read that subject outward and so we're obviously interested in a lot of things various political issues around gender around sex and identity and we wanted to read those political issues through the lens of the dawning climate reality so for example the issues of women's rights and women's reproductive rights and looking at where that intersects with the state of the planet and how this is a, a subject that's often deployed by climate change activists in ways that maybe kind of imply that the responsibility for is on on women's reproductive choices, as though having children is the make or break issue and women, you know, in their daily lives should be bearing further weight, you know, as if we don't already have enough (laughs) Enough to grapple with. with, We should also be worrying that our decision to have a child or not is going to... Yeah. So I think that's kind of how we played with a lot of these other subjects. I know that class is another thing that comes up a lot for us in the book because we discuss housing, we discuss gentrified areas. London is a truly gentrified and um, isolated space. Scotland has become Alba and is independent. England has devolved into a selection of federated counties. So who should be reading this book then? Everyone. Everyone. (laughs) That sounds a little bit of an oversell, (laughs) but I think we do really think that we wanted to write something that appeals to everyone. Everyone was born. Everyone has a stake in this conversation about what it means to have children and what it means to have children in this moment. Everyone sits in that nexus of power relations that comes Mm. with being in a family, whether it's a family, you know, you want to be part of or not, like everyone is born. Someone else always chooses for you to come into this world or allows for you to come into this world, whether they've chosen that or not. And The Offset by Calder Shevchek is published by Angry Robot. Our featured guest on Bookmark today is Helen Joyce talking about her book, Trans. Helen, we sort of touched on this before, the way politics have been drawn into this argument, the transgender activism argument. Where does feminism sit on that spectrum? Oh, such an interesting question. I mean, feminism isn't just one thing. It's lots of movements and they're quite fractious. I wasn't a movement feminist before, although I regarded myself as a feminist. So it's been enlightening to me to see from the inside how many fights there are. So here in the UK, there's a real resurgence of grassroots feminism, which was sparked by this attempt to change the definition in law of man and woman in 2017 to be just what you say you are. Like This is called gender self-identification. And this grassroots feminist activism pushed back against that successfully, but it's still fighting to take those ramifications out of other laws and other societal practices. There's a whole different set of people who call themselves feminists who regard themselves as trans-inclusive meaning they see feminism as being a movement that's for everybody who thinks of themselves as a woman. And if you think what those people have in common, it's not very much. That sort of feminism no longer argues, for example, for you know better pregnancy rights and maternity rights or better health care for female people, because women aren't any more those sorts of people. 
So I'm not really very sure what those feminists do. I think they do a lot of hashtags. Explain the word TERF to me. Because okay. you've been called this, haven't you? Yeah, I don't care. You know, if people want to say insulting things, I don't have to listen to them. It stands for trans-exclusionary radical feminist. Radical feminism is a particular branch of feminism. People think it means, like, really tough feminists, but it means feminism taken back to its roots. Radical meaning root. And it's the idea that we live in a patriarchy and that patriarchy shapes all relations, power relations between male and female people, with female people systematically oppressed, their resources taken by the male people. I don't subscribe to all of it. But anyway, if you understand human relations in that way, you're not naturally going to think that a male person who says he's a woman becomes a woman. You understand an oppressive relationship between males and females. So those were the first feminists who said, "Uh uh-uh, not going along with this. I don't think that sex is what you say you are. I think sex is a physical reality. And for that, they were called trans-exclusionary radical feminists. They don't include trans women, meaning male people who identify as women, in the class of women or females. TERF is the snappy sort of four-letter insult that's used for that. But as I say, I don't care. And where are we on public policy with regard to all this? I know that's a big question. So the overarching law that governs all this sort of stuff in this country is the Equality Act, which swept together more than 100 human rights and civil rights and equality pieces of legislation. And within that, sex is really clear. Like in this country, sex means really what sex is. It means male or female. And there's a separate provision for some people who have a protected characteristic called gender reassignment. And that means people who don't really identify with the sex that they actually are. And rightly, they are protected. They're protected against discrimination, harassment and so on. So the law is actually not bad. It's the practice has gone very far away from the law in the past 10 years. So the Equality Act is really, really clear that it's fine to have women-only spaces in obvious sorts of situations, like, you know, changing rooms or sports. But in fact, public organisations are no longer offering these sorts of things, or at least they're starting to stop offering them, because they get harassed whenever they do and told they're bigots. OK, thank you, Helen. We'll come back to sports in just a moment because uh, that's a big chapter of your book. But let's hear your second choice of music now, which is The Hole by Vim Mertens. I could have chosen so many pieces for you. <laughs> this one is just so lyrical. It's, um, it's a three-beat against a two-beat the whole way round. And as you listen, the two play against each other and interweave in ways that always make me think of, of dancers. So I see them in my mind's eye when I listen. <laughs> Mark with Lee Chambers on Cambridge 105 Radio. With Heifer's Bookshop, the great Cambridge bookseller since 1876. And our feature guest on Bookmark today is Helen Joyce talking about her book Trans, When Ideology Meets Reality. Helen, we were talking before the music there about the way that trans women in particular are competing in women's sports. Why does this bother you? Because a a trans woman may say, well, look, I'm taking all the hormones, maybe had surgery. I can compete equally with women. So if you think why we have sex separated sports at all in the first place, it's just because of male puberty. Testosterone is, as they say, a hell of a drug. The things it does, if you have a son, I have two, it's quite remarkable what it does to them. It changes everything about the body in a big hurry and in ways that make men 
larger, stronger, all sorts of ways I didn't know until I did the research for the book as well. Like men have bigger hearts, bigger lungs, more blood, more um, red blood cells. They have much more ergonomic shapes for their shoulders and hips and knees. And so they have this really large sporting advantage that's called the male sporting advantage. And it's literally, if you took the world's very best woman and the world's very best man in a sport, or you took the most average woman and the most average man, the man is going to be 10% to 50% better because of what testosterone has done to his body. Those things can't be undone. You can't wind back and go back through male puberty and undo it. So even if you suppress your testosterone, even if you take oestrogen, even if you have genital surgery, you've still got that advantage nearly all of its days. And that means that a man who's maybe 10% from the top of the ability range, or a male person, I should say, because this person may identify as a woman, can maybe beat the world's best woman. So we saw this in the Olympics this summer. New Zealand sent a weightlifter who is a male, a trans woman, in their 40s, who had a nearly career-ending injury of the shoulder a couple of years ago to compete as a weightlifter. And this is one of the sports where the sex difference is widest. Men can lift 50% more than women, matched ability for ability. And so this person who is really past it, there are not 40-something-year-old women at the Olympics, was competing against the world's strongest women who are 18 to 21-year-olds, mostly from the Pacific Islands, and took a place from a woman. And I know it's not your job to find a solution to this, but obviously there are trans women, trans men who want to compete in sports. So where can they compete? I mean, there's nothing wrong with a trans woman competing in the male category because trans women are male. Sport isn't there to affirm people's gender identity. It's there to provide a safe and fair competition. And I know that if you don't know much about sport, that can sound weird. But actually, elite women compete in men's sports all the time. So I'm actually from a sporting family, though I'm not very sporty myself. I have siblings who have played cricket at international level, both male and female. And my sister Isabel, who was the captain of the Ireland women's cricket team for several years, routinely turned out for a male club side because that was how she could get best competition. So it's not like there's an issue here. Of course the men's teams should be accepting trans women. Why should they not? So all you're left with is just to make sure that they've got decent changing rooms, decent shower facilities and so on. It's not a hard problem to solve, actually. Do you think we might be moving to some sort of gender-neutral playing field, as it were? I'm just thinking, we're speaking in the week, the Brits have announced that they're going to have gender-neutral categories. It's women who lose when you go gender-neutral because the world that we live in is still default male. The world is built for men. Things like seatbelts in cars or the size of mobile phones, they're fitted to men. So if you say gender-neutral, well, you're still going to have male and female people. We still come in two flavours. But everything's just going to be designed for the ones that you think of first, namely the men. I mean, this is a complicated world we're living in at the moment, isn't it? How how do you negotiate this? Because we have uh, people putting their gender pronouns on their Zoom profiles, on their Twitter handles. Where do you stand on things like that? I regard it all as like a belief. And because I'm a classic 19th century liberal, I am very strong and hot on both free speech and freedom of belief. So to me, someone who's putting their gender pronouns in their profile is doing something similar to somebody wearing a cross or somebody who dresses as an orthodox Jewish person wearing the hijab or something like that. And it's fine. It's fine as long as I don't have to do it. And as long as I don't have to pretend that I can't see the reality in front of me, namely that there are male people and female people and I can tell which are which. 
And what about expressions like assigned at birth? Would you use that? No, because it's nonsense. You're a mother too, Lee. <laughs> you know, the baby did not pop out and have somebody, you know, find the sorting hat and work out whether this is a male or a female. We're going to hear from Vinisha Welby in a moment about her novel Dreamtime, which is set sort of slightly in the future. She talks about climate change, military occupation, virus. And I just wondered, given we're sort of in a COVID, post-COVID world, what's been that effect on transgender activism? Has it been good for transgender activism or not? I think it's been a mixed picture. Kids who have picked up ideas that have confused them at school, like the sort of kid who would have been a goth or an emo or something and decided the latest thing is to be non-binary, they were taken away from that place. And for some of them, that was healthy. But then on the other hand, there are children who are going through quite severe mental health issues or, you know, home issues or are struggling to come to terms with their sexuality. And for them, it was bad. That's the place I've seen the impact of the pandemic most is on children's mental health. Thank you, Helen. We'll come back to you in just a moment. But let's hear from Venetia Welby now. Venetia is a writer and journalist. Her essays and short fiction have appeared in The London Magazine, Review 31 and the anthologies Garden Among Fires and Trauma. Her first novel, Mother of Darkness, came out in 2017 and her second, Dreamtime, was published in September. The Observer included it in Fiction to Look Out For in 2021 and called it Dazzling and Exquisite. When I spoke to Venetia, I asked her to tell me what Dreamtime is about. Dreamtime is about the journey of uh, a young American woman to find her GI father in Japan at a time of climate catastrophe. She's fresh out of Tucson Desert Rehab. She's learnt this vital information that her long-lost father is a GI in Okinawa, or at least he was. And as flying's about to be banned, this is her last chance to find him. This is set in the future? It's set in the very near future, and it's based largely on things that are already happening or have been happening in the past 100 years since World War II in Okinawa, uh, which is a very interesting place. It's part of Japan now. It was colonised by Japan in 1879. At that point, Japan attempted to erase its indigenous culture and its language, and then they were used as a human shield in World War II, after which the American bases moved in. There are currently 33 American military bases on Okinawa, which is a tiny island, and it's part of this beautiful archipelago of tropical islands of indigenous people, but with this strange cultural confusion. It's part American, part Japanese, partly the indigenous people. And it struck me as an obvious place to write about. Well, I can see why you're inspired. 33 bases on a small island. It's impossible to imagine. I went twice. I wasn't prepared for what I found. I, I was expecting it to be, you know, it's billed as the Hawaii of Japan. Yes, it's different. I expected it to be a very interesting hybrid culture, maybe a slightly conflicted psyche. But what I found was that was just horrendous crimes, violent sexual crimes that have been committed over the last 75 years. And, and people forced to cluster to build their houses around the military bases because all the good land has been taken. When I was there, an Okinawan man was run over by a drunk Marine in a two-ton military truck. A week later, a bit of a military aircraft fell onto a nursery. And then six days after that, another military aircraft fell into a, a playground. People live in constant fear of this happening. And it's only getting worse, really. Every, every time there's saber rattling from China or North Korea, then the US justifies building more bases. It's a situation that I think not enough people know about in the West. 
And you talked about this has been going on for quite some time, but not being able to fly. And I think there's a virus as well. This, this is more recent history as well. Were you writing this during the pandemic? No, I wrote it before the pandemic. But many of the things that I'm writing about are happening already. And climate change was one of those things. If you're a Pacific island, then you're probably more aware of climate change. I mean, I know we're on an island here, but I don't, I don't think we have such a visceral sense of sea levels rising. The virus was more to do with the history of what has already been happening in the Cold War with the development of chemical weapons and biological weapons. Okinawa was used as a place to store such things. So you're tackling lots of big issues in this novel. You're talking about climate change there. There's sexual abuse and migration. When you sat down to write this, was that what you thought? You know, I want to include these. Or as you were writing and the stories started coming, did these issues just surface? It all arose organically from the place. I went to the place to find the stories. And that's how all my stories tend to emerge from places. I don't think I forced any narrative onto the story that wasn't already there, that didn't present itself to me from what I found when I was traveling there. Sexual abuse is rife there. Climate change is always going to be a problem for Pacific Islands. It's worsening by the day. And the military situation is at the absolute heart of trying to understand those islands. And maybe any islands. I mean, all islands are at the mercy of bigger islands or the nearest mainland. And it's a constant struggle to hold on to your identity. And bearing in mind the islands are so important to your novel, how did you keep a sense of them in your head when you were writing? I think anyone who actually went to those islands would, would never lose the sense of them. They are just so wild and spectacular and exciting, deadly. Everything in the sea will kill you. You have to swim in a net. There are cone shells on the beach, and if you touch them, you might die. There's a strong sense of life or death on those islands, and it's not just because of the wildness. It's because of the constant proximity of the jets flying overhead and the marines walking through the streets and the protests of elderly Okinawans against the latest military base that's going to destroy the sacred dugong habitats, the seagrass meadows. I will never forget them. They are extraordinary places. There is something about islands, isn't there? Well, obviously, the way they're cut off and can be inward looking and the rules and the societies and cultures that can thrive there. Yeah, and the folklore. Every island has its own special world beyond the door as well that helps to make sense of the island and that the island people understand. And have you had any response to your novel from the people living on the island? I've already been in touch, obviously, with lots of people when I was travelling there. Some people were very generous and gave feedback on the novel. And although fiction has its own integrity, it felt ultra important as a white woman that I do my due diligence, that things ring true to the people who live there. The people of Okinawa form a vast diaspora, and many of them have got in touch. A lot of them are sort of forming political protest groups, and it's nice to be included. And is there something, because I hadn't, didn't know about this situation, is there something also for you about raising awareness of what's going on here? Definitely that's part of it, yeah. That was a big motivation in writing it, but I also felt a huge responsibility not to get it wrong, because I think if you do try to write about a culture that's not your own and you don't get it right, then you can draw attention away from the voices that need to be heard, which are the original voices of the people who actually live there. Yeah, I'd like my novel to be a signpost towards 
those people and their voices and their experience but actually living through the last 75 years all the stories of their grandmothers the stories of the absolute hell of world war ii and beyond and this is your second novel how different was the writing process for this from your first novel what had you learned one thing i learned is that after you write a novel you're going to have to talk about it so it'd be a really good idea to know exactly what it's about and be able to express that in a sort of pithy kind of way and although I haven't quite managed that with this one and I doubt I ever will I had it very firmly in mind what it was about in one sentence as I was writing it and all the way through and practiced saying that to people whereas I think the first one developed very organically and there was a lot of external input and different external input like I had two different agents and I rewrote different parts for each of them. And then an editor suggested various other parts. And the whole process took place over quite a long time. By the end of it, I couldn't remember what exactly I'd set out to write. And it was a strange feeling having to present it as something something solid. And the writing process itself, was that quicker, easier? I think it was a lot quicker because it had a clearer structure. A journey is always going to begin somewhere and end up somewhere else it's easier to hang a story off that kind of structure and Dreamtime by Venetia Welby is published by Salt we've been talking on Bookmark today to Helen Joyce author of Trans When Ideology Meets Reality published by One World Helen I didn't ask you before what you where you thought transgender activism was going but I'm going to ask you now where is this movement going what do you see lying in the future Different things in different countries. So in America, I don't see a way back from the level of reality denial they've gone into. Here, I think it has caused, as I said, this most incredible flowering of grassroots feminist activism, which is incredibly exciting. And I hope, like the good outcome is that the revitalised feminism allows us to move away from something that's happened in the past several decades, which is this idea that to be equal, women and men must be exactly the same. Somehow women are just men that have a womb. And we don't think about the ways in which men and women need different things. Sometimes, some women, not all. That could be very exciting. That could be a way that we can reconnect with our physical reality. But I think there's going to be really hard times in between now and then because there's going to be pitch battle. Like so much ground has been won by people I regard as reality deniers and they're not going to want to give it up. But it's too important that children aren't lied to about sex, that gay people aren't lied to about what sexuality is and that women can set boundaries for us to give it up. And do you think it's going to be easier to speak out? It's already much easier than it was three years ago. I mean, maybe partly I've just got hardened to people gasping with astonishment and horror when I say the things that I do, like there are men and women and they're different. But yeah, if you look, lots more people are speaking out now than they were three years ago and every person makes it easier for the next. And a question that we ask all our guests on Bookmark, what are you reading at the moment? (laughs) That's quite funny, actually. I'm rereading the Dune books, or Dune, as you English people say. I still haven't managed to get to see the film. And I read the books as a teenager, and they're monumentally long. I often think it would be a service (laughs) to humanity that somebody edited them down to about a third the length, but I don't have the time for that. And I'm always so tired when I go to bed that I read them in bed and I fall asleep as I'm reading. So I've really no idea what's happening. I'm on the sixth <laughs> at the moment. But, you know, they're quite soporific at this point. I'm looking forward to the film, though. Well, we'll come back to you for your last choice of music in just a moment. But a heads up that our next show is a Christmas show and it's a belter. Our featured guest is food writer Annie Gray. She's talking about her book, At Christmas We Feast, Festive Food Through the Ages. We'll also hear from Ken Follett on his latest blockbuster, The Spy Thriller Never. And Harry Sidebottom will be talking about his standalone novel, 
The Burning Road. But we'll sign out, Helen, with your last choice of music, which is another Michael Nyman track, Time Lapse from Z and Two Noughts. This piece is a theme that Michael Nyman repeats in many forms under different names too. And for me, it's my memento mori. It's the piece that when I hear it, I remember I will die. And I know that sounds very downbeat for the end of a show, but, you know, we are all going to die. And actually, your memento mori is meant to be a reminder to live. So every time I hear it, I remember how lucky we are to be here, how beautiful the world is, and how precious it is to be sitting and looking at sunlight and breathing and talking to friends. And here we are. Thank you. 